0: As a young child, I had a heightened sense that God's eyes were on me. I really did have this, you know, awareness or feeling that God was watching me, which meant that um, when I sinned, when I did the wrong thing, as a kid, I really felt guilty. I felt God was angry. I used to... I remember, actually, when I was about six or seven, just hiding under the doona at home, you know, in the dark afraid of God's judgment on my life. Um, And it took me a while to discover the grace of God. It took me a while to really realise what forgiveness meant in God. And I guess this is a perfectly reasonable response from a boy who saw the world as a a moral universe of good and evil, bad and good, as um, little kids kind of use that kind of language. Um, and I also believed in in the idea of heaven and hell, so maybe my theology wasn't quite right, but I sort of believed that if I did the wrong thing, God would send me to hell. Um, And there's something healthy about that thought as a kid, but there's also, you know, you can end up in all kinds of dangerous places if you don't also learn about the fullness of God. Anyway, do you believe that God is watching you? Do you believe that... When you tell lies or when you gossip about your friends or um, when you are lustful, when you bend the rules with your finances, do you believe that God sees? What if you took God out of the picture? Let's think about that for a moment. What if there was no God watching your every move? Like, What if, um, if atheism was true? What would that mean for us in terms of our actions and our, you know, our ability to, to live with our actions? Um, I love thinking about this, and I love it when um, movies and books deal with these kind of issues. And there's a film that I I, I actually showed once at St. Hillary's as a um, you know conversation topic, and people came and we talked about it. And the film was called is called Crimes and Misdemeanors, and it actually explores these themes of, is there a God watching us? Is there any consequences for our moral actions? It's a film by Woody Allen. And uh, he's a deeply flawed human being, as we know. But he actually says a lot of interesting things about God and about faith and the human condition. And in this film, he, he basically bases the film on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Um, which explores these themes of morality. Is there a God? Is anyone watching? Are there any consequences? And there are these two characters in the film that, that represent two different atheist positions. Um, one, one atheist position is, is played by this ophthalmologist character, um, who's kind of the, the, he's the main character in the film. And um, he, he uh, believes the universe has no moral centre and that all we have to do is work it out for ourselves... And the other leading character, played by Woody Allen, um, believes the universe does have a moral code even though there is no God. Anyway, I want to focus on the ophthalmologist because it's his kind of thinking that I I want us to think about for the moment. He was a successful ophthalmologist um, and he was highly respected in his community. And I think there's no coincidence that he's an ophthalmologist, which is about the eyes, you know, and watching, God watching. Anyway, he goes on this business trip in the movie and he meets his air hostess, um, and he likes the look of her, and they have an affair. And this man, you know, he's got a family and his kids, and he's highly respected by his colleagues. Anyway, he has this affair, and it turns out um, she, was, she was fairly unstable, this woman, and uh, she <coughs> obsesses over him and then tries to get him to convince her to leave his wife, and, and he probably tell, I think he tells her that he's going to, but never does. And then she becomes enraged and threatens to ruin his career and expose him to everyone. So the ophthalmologist talks to his brother, whose brother's a bit of a, you know underworld gangster type, and, and they arrange um, a hitman to come and knock her off. And so the woman is killed. And after she's bumped off, the ophthalmologist, he's free from the burden of this crazy woman who's going to expose him as a moral failure. And uh, he can go on living his life. And after a while of time of guilt, he sort of forces all these thoughts of guilt down and then he, he starts to cope with this reality of life. Now, at the end of the film, to cut a long story short, at the end of the film, there's a famous scene where the two characters, who so far have not met until the last five minutes of the film, they meet these, with these two different positions on atheism and, and they have a discussion. And the ophthalmologist pro- pro- proposes this idea for a movie script, because Woody Allen's character is a film director, in the the film, funnily enough. And he says, I've got this idea for a movie script, the ophthalmologist says. And he says, um, it's about... He described his own situation. And he says, you know, he talks about this murder that happens. But in his hypothetical script, he says, after the man goes through a period of religiously inspired guilt where he is aware of the moral universe, and he's about to confess to police and hand himself in. He says, in this movie, what would happen is he'd just wake up one day and the sun would be shining and the birds would be tweeting and he'd just go on living his life. And he said, all these thoughts of God watching him were just a psychological trick and now he's able to move on. He goes on holiday, he discovers he's not punished by anyone, and the killing is attributed to a homeless man, he says, and everyone just goes back to their normal life. And he explains his thinking to the Woody Allen character and he says, people carry sins around, but he's able to, but he's able to live without this character. This is reality, he says. In reality, we rationalise, we deny, or we couldn't go on living. Now, this worldview that's presented here is called existential atheism. And in it, there is no God and... Um, the, you know, you can debate about where morality comes from in existentialism, but you could argue that mor- you, you create your own framework for morality, and if you're able to cope, you know, with your decisions, <coughs> with, with your actions, then that's good for you. That's, that's in existential atheism. You could theoretically murder someone, and if you can handle it psychologically and get on with their life, well done. <laughs> so this, this kind of universe is quite bleak, and it's the exact opposite of the Christian worldview... It leaves us in an amoral universe where where there are no consequences for actions. Maybe perhaps it's a universe without God, but where morality is part of the natural order. Either way, it's up for you to decide where morality comes from. There's no God of justice behind any of this. Justice in this kind of world comes from your own conscience, or perhaps from society, perhaps But this is not the Christian view of the universe. Or is it? You see, the the strange thing is, um, while I started off aware of God's eye on me as a young Christian boy, as I got older, I started to realise, like the ophthalmologist in Crimes and Misdemeanours, that when I sinned, if no one caught me, then I could just, you know, oh, well, I'll forget about it in a few days. Um... I could pretend it never happened. And there'd be no obvious consequence. What people didn't know didn't hurt them. And I grew a certain amount of resistance to the feeling of deep guilt. I developed a series of excuses like I'm not as bad as other people, or I'm just human. I was able to exist in parallel universes. One where God is watching me, the other one where God is not watching me. And this is what you call Christian atheism. I suspect we have a lot of Christian atheists around. You believe in God... At one level you, you, in your head you say you're a Christian and you probably believe you're a Christian and you do believe in Jesus but your actions do not reveal it. That's Christian atheism. You are a believer and a non-believer at the same time. How can this be possible? Well, it can be possible for a human being to be two things at the same time. Freud discussed this phenomenon. Think about the person who's drunk too much. They know exactly how much they have drunk. Right? And they tell themselves that they are not really that drunk, so they hop in the car and they drive home. And Freud says um, that they are so ashamed with themselves of getting drunk that they tell themselves that they're not really that drunk at all, and so therefore they can just drive the car. They know probably technically if a breath tester came, you know, a cop with a breath test did a breath test they would not pass it. But then they just tell themselves they're not really drunk. It's the ability just to live in two minds. They know in one part of their brain who they are, but they're so ashamed in that other part of the brain tells them something else. These opposing ideas in the brain cause what Freud calls cognitive dissonance. The brain doesn't like cognitive dissonance. Um, Believing one thing and believing a totally opposite thing. But you can cope with a certain amount of it for a while. You can cope with a certain amount of it for a while. But eventually, your subconscious wants to resolve the clash. So this is why, for example, a person who's having an affair often leaves clues of the affair around to their husband or wife because their brain can't handle the clash. They just want to resolve the clash. So why a murderer, um, who a person who's killed someone and it wasn't premeditated, hands themselves in because... They just can't handle walking around with that. Um, It's a way of resolving that dissonance. Um, It takes a fair amount of sin for us to get to that point of psychological torment where we have to resolve it some way or another. But most of us can go on, because we're professionals at this, of being Christian atheists for ages. We can do it. So I asked you before, do you believe that God's eyes are upon you? Now I ask you, are you a Christian atheist? Do you ever truly admit that you're a sinner? Because that's what you are. Or do you just push it down, hoping the guilt will fade away? If you believe there is a moral universe with a God who is just and demands holiness, but who also offers forgiveness to all those who have faith in Jesus, then who do you confess to? Now, we don't need to look far in the Bible to see the importance of confession. There are commands to confess in the law, in the Hebrew law and there's plenty of examples of people famous people who uh, confess their sins remember king david psalm 51 um, this is what king david says when nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into bathsheba and had an affair have mercy on me O god according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He goes on and, and, and confesses his sins. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever confi- conceals the transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. When Jesus came and started his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is near. Mm-hmm. Repent, which implies confess, and uh, and believe the good news. Confession is the natural reaction of a A a creature who is aware of being in the presence of a holy God. A sinful creature in the presence of a holy God. It's a natural reaction. In Acts 19 when Paul was in Ephesus and the people saw the way God used him powerfully. It says in Acts 19 that they came to believe and as a result they confessed and disclosed their evil practices. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that as Christians we have the ministry of reconciliation and therefore we should go on being reconciled to God through confession. And in the reading that we had just before from James 5, Christians are to confess to each other for the sake of a healthy relationship and healthy community. Uh, It says in verse 15, The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So James is saying this kind of prayer should be... um, uh, It's individuals confessing to people within the community, to the ones that they've wronged against. Um, If you have wronged someone, you tell them so. You confess, you repent, and you ask them for forgiveness. And doing so, James says, will lead to healthy community. So this is we begin our prayer series looking at confession because so often overlooked, we talk about how to pray, we talk about you know, models of prayer, we look at great prayers in the Bible, but what about confession? Confession is part of prayer. How do you confess your sins when you're praying? Well, here's some tips, and this, this could work in your private prayers on your own between you and God, or mm, it could happen in context of prayer with another person or in a, in a smaller group. Um, and I think it's that second one which is the real test, isn't it? That kind of confession when other people um, are with you because that's that's a lot harder. So confessing to a friend or um, or in your private context, um, you need someone that, if you're going to pray with another person, you need to be with someone who tr- you can trust, who's not going to use that information against you to abuse you. I know that sounds a weird thing to say, but people can abuse each other in, in religion, can't we? Um, When you confess, be specific and say it out loud. Don't just use euphemisms. Um, Don't say, I've just been really busy and haven't had enough time for my family. Say, I've been hurtful and neglectful to my wife and kids. That's a confession. Don't just say, I struggle with being organised with tithing. That's kind of a soft way of explaining your confession. Say, I've been selfish with my money and don't re- really trust God with my whole heart. Uh, don't say, oh, I had an affair. Say, I committed adultery. <laughs> it's, it's important to be specific like that and direct because part of confession is owning up to what's really happened. It's not about bashing yourself over the head either. It's, it's about being real and honest. And then you have to ask God for forgiveness, knowing in faith that what he has done in Jesus, um, Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, enables you, if you have faith in that, to receive forgiveness. (laughs) And you need to know that when you're confessing, you're already forgiven, because Jesus' death pays for your sins in the past, the present and the future. So confession leads to hope and joy and healing. And if you are the person listening... What often we want to do when someone confesses their sins to us is go, oh, it's all right, we're all, we're all strugglers, aren't we? You know, say a comment like that, to try and smooth it over. But um, more importantly, what you can say is something like, God, who is faithful and who is just, will forgive you of your sins if you're truly repentant. And not trying to smooth it over. Because it's important that we both, all of us, can do this together. This is what you call a spiritual discipline, right? It takes guts. It needs to be regular. It needs to be part of the rhythms of your Christian life. Now, if you're one of those people um, who thinks to yourself, I'm not feeling God's presence in my life. You know, I come to church and I I don't really feel anything. Or I go to a community group, I open the Bible, I don't feel anything. One of the things I like to point to, first of all, is the spiritual disciplines. And I ask you this question. When was the last time you confessed your sins? You know, If you want to feel something, confess your sins to another person, uh, another Christian friend. Ask God for forgiveness. You'll start feeling something then, I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah. you know, you'll start to feel something. And that's the case with all the spiritual disciplines. Um, uh, silence. Prayer reading the Bible, giving your money away, serving, um, being generous. All of of these disciplines uh, help us to connect with God, especially confession. It should make you feel the sting of vulnerability. It should make you feel the shame of what you've done. But then also, simultaneously, it will help your heart to sing Feel the song of grace as you realise God's love and forgiveness. So this is why um, in church we confess our sins each week. So that's another way we can do confession, is corporate confession, where we're not standing up the front saying, this week this is what I've done, here's my list. Yeah. Um, but we do it because um, it's a really important way that we can relate to God. In the Book of Common Prayer, which is what the Anglican prayer books based on, the original Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer who put it together he was kind of the author of most of the liturgy but also he sort of compiled it all he says this in the prayer book he says and although we ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before God yet ought we most chiefly so to do when we assemble and meet together to render thanks for the great benefits we have received at his hands to set forth his most worthy praise to hear his most holy word and to ask those things which be requisite and necessary as for the body as the soul. Confession is requisite and necessary for the body and the soul. So the prayer books saying, just as you do it in your daily life, do it in your corporate life as well. Confession should happen early in the service. We, we do it early in the service, and there's a reason for that. I don't want to just point to it so you know, because it's good to be in on the know of why church is the way it is. It's because a church service is um, a performance. It's a dramatisation of the gospel. So you walk in, and um, you, you, you stand before God, and you say, here we are. And then suddenly you realise you're a sinner in the service, um, after standing before God for five minutes. And so what do you need to do? You need to confess. So that's where the drama keeps moving through the service. And there's a tension. Oh, we're sinners. And then we're assured of our forgiveness. So there's a re- resolution. And you keep going through that drama. And there's an arc. And then eventually you might have the Lord's Supper. You might open the Bible. You might talk about it. You might bring that out and point to Jesus and what he's done. And at the end of the service, you resolve that. Um, in, the, in the narrative of the drama of a church service um, by, in the blessing and sending each other out and even when we gather as, um, in fellowship at the end having a cup of tea or whatever coffee that is part of the expression of that dramatisation when the kids come out and show us their drawings that's part of the dramatisation it's all the body of Christ being, being who we are in front of each other and reminding ourselves of what God has done so this is why we have confession early in the service um, a, a sense of movement and direction, a, a reminder of what who we are before God. This is what confession achieves. It, it achieves all these amazing things. Um, it achieves forgiveness, for example. For, we can receive forgiveness. One John one nine says, "If we confess our sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness." And as Augustine wrote, and it's on the front of the booklet. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. I love that. So while Jesus' death on the cross has an ongoing effect of forgiveness for all those who believe in him, the Bible still tells us to confess our sins. So forgiveness. It also helps us to know God better. Confessing our sins in prayer um, helps us to know ourselves truly. It helps us to prevent Christian atheism. 1 John 1, 1.8 says that if we say that we are not sinners, then we deceive ourselves. There's that cognitive dissonance again. You know, it's the, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a sinner. Oh, hang on, yes, I am a sinner. You know, But confession resolves that. Be true to yourself. Three, humility. Um, we are forced into humility because we say, yep, I'm a sinner, I've done the wrong thing before people and before God. It's not because of your personal holiness that you're saved, but it's because of who Jesus is. The prayer of confession admits that we need God's help. It's also good catharsis. So, you know, when you experience uh, the shame of sin, then confession brings about a good feeling. It's It's a multiple, it's a multiple feelings, but ultimately it's a good feeling. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you, a burden, I'll give you rest. Confession is one way you can enter into the rest of God. Fifthly, it's about knowing Jesus. Our knowledge of Jesus will be so much stronger. When St. Augustine, as a young man, was a sex addict, and he was tormented, he found Christ, he confessed his sins, he experienced forgiveness, and he also discovered the supernatural power of God's grace. It was Augustine who said, grace alone conquers sin. And he became one of the most important theologians and bishops in church history um, because of his awareness of his own sinfulness, the need to confess, and God's grace. Knowing Jesus is great. And lastly, mature discipleship. So there's six things. When we confess our sins in worship, it makes us walk as disciples so much more deeply and profoundly. We're not just... Gating across the surface of the experiential 21st century pop Christianity this is a deep proper Christianity so in conclusion mark 4:22 jesus says this for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out in the open don't go on holding on to your sin let it go It's all going to be revealed in the end anyway. Hand your sins over to Jesus. Don't walk around with that burden on your back. Jesus wants to carry it for you. He is the king of forgiveness. He is the Lord of the grace. He's the one who, dying on the cross, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the one who tells us to forgive people 70 times 70 times. 70 times 7 times, I Jesus knows that we can't be holy on our own and he's offering us his help. Is God watching you? Yep, he is. Do you need to hide under the doona in fear? At one level you do and another level you don't. God takes sin seriously but he also has provided a way of forgiveness through Jesus. Let's pray for each other. Lord God, um, we lift all of us up to you potential little Christian atheists, and we pray that um, we can grow as disciples and learn what it is to confess our sins. We pray that um, for all of us who are still carrying around st- stuff that we're ashamed of, that we can find someone who come to one of the ministry staff here or find a trusted Christian friend who we can confess our sins to. And please help us to do this as just a part of our daily practice. Um, Please help us to grow in our spiritual disciplines. Amen.